Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Boop. Hit it. Wow. Call back. We haven't been to the take mines in a while. Maybe it's time. Could be time. This could, could be, be the time. film. I heard they're I heard they're chilly. Get our pickaxes this time of year. Yeah. Chilly? Chilly, like the Chilean miners? Don't worry, it's always hot in the take mines. <laughs> Ooh. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw at the Trilon Cinema or people we met there. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema and Trilon.org, where you can get tickets to upcoming showings, uh, virtual or in person, and find great ways to support them like merch and uh, ongoing club membership. But in the meantime, my name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. My life is just one long round of whoopee, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, no, I forgot. I fucking I'm gonna, forgot, too, I'm gonna, man. I'm going I'm I'm to back don't. up because I, I actually wrote one down last night. My name is Jason right. Daphnis. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not exactly ugly. And you can oh, that was the one I was going to maybe use, except oh. I am actually, actually ugly, uh, but, hey. which is great. I, I say I've got a face for podcasting, you know? <laughs> That's my friend you're talking about. <laughs> um, I don't have any lines, but my name's Harry, I guess. Um, and you can find me at Chitaki Harry. Let me try. I'm going to try and think of a line. Let me. Mm, I guess I forgot about the bit. I was, uh, I can think of a line too. I was just like saying, <laughs> my life. if I, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I'm Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at RB Please. I, I didn't. I also didn't think of a line. I, I'm gonna peel the curtain back on myself. I just always forget the bit, and in the moment, I remember a line because there's a line uh, from the movie that I I thought was memorable enough. But uh, I don't. I don't got a line, fellas. I'm sorry. You got to get that notebook going. I after Cody yeah. started after Cody revealed his notice process, I kept a notebook with me. I think th- for every showing of every movie we've done since then. Yeah, I thought about it too. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll go right into the takes, huh? And, and I will say that, um, I didn't write down a quote because I don't think that this is a particularly memorable script. Okay. That is one note I'm going to jot down, but in the meantime, we need Aaron to introduce the movie. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about remember the night 1940 directed by Mitchell Leeson, uh, written by Preston Sturges, who wrote, uh, also wrote the great McGinty, uh, which he was nominated for an Academy Award. He also, uh, wrote the lady Eve, a very famous movie. Um, he was also, sorry if this is a Cody's note, I don't think so though. He was also a contributing writer on a 1933 film that we recorded on. Does anybody want to guess what that could be? 1933 would that have been the thin man wasn't the no thin man, the, was that was 34 there maybe it's not 33 Chopper or it might have been 33 but he didn't write it no it's uh the invisible man 
very odd. Yeah, oh, contributing okay. writer. Um, but yes, uh, Preston Sturges, uh, probably more notable than Mitchell uh, Leeson as the director, the kind of famous uh, comedic writer. Um, this film specifically uh, follows on our Double Indemnity episode by being yet another film co-starring Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. Uh, Stanwyck plays Lee Leander, a woman arrested for stealing jewelry just a few days before Christmas. Uh, Fred McMurray uh, plays John Sargent, uh, an assistant district attorney who is assigned to prosecute her, uh, who also purposefully delays the trial until after Christmas, as the jurors are more likely to rule in Lee's favor due to the spirit of the season. Uh, feeling bad that Lee is going to stay in jail over the holidays, John arranges for her bail for uh, from the court bondsman. After John discovers that Lee is from Indiana, like himself, he offers to drop her, drop her off at her mother's house on the way to his own families for the holidays. Uh, but when it turns out that Lee's mother no longer loves her daughter, Lee is forced to spend the holidays with John's family. Uh, and some hijinks, I guess, ensue from there. Thank you. Uh, pretty good summary, right. Aaron. Yeah, Thank you. Pretty Thank good you. summary. A lot of plot uh, at the beginning. Yeah, so for our to kick off just our top level thoughts, um, I'm probably going to need help parsing this movie a little bit because I feel like there might be something I was missing. Uh, I hope there was. I was not super entertained by it. I don't know how far that uh, should, I guess, help me in criticizing the movie. I don't know how far I should take that uh, criticism toward like expanding it out toward toward the movie as a piece. But uh, it's it's like the classic setup of positioning two people against the opposite sides of a social fence kind of like uh, in shop around the corner or how we talked about the killer um, to make them fall in love. But then it uses traditional American values and bootstraps uh, capitalism to, to find that middle ground between them and make them like make them realize what they, how they like are and aren't similar. Um, I don't know if that worked for me very well. It is an incredibly charming uh, Barbara Stanwyck role. Um, Fred McMurray is also really good in it. I think I don't find much special to talk about, and I really find it hard to like bash on it too much, but I'm hoping we can dig into why you did and didn't like it uh, with our, with our top level summaries. For sure. Um, so uh, I watched this movie yesterday initially by myself and I know social calendars are a big sticking point on the show. Um, so to pull back the curtain, I had other plans last night. I ended up being free later. So I watched the movie earlier in the day and then I turned, uh, tuned in to rewatch the latter half of the movie with uh, the rest of the fellas. Um, so I so was sweet. Do that very night. thankful um, for that. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a good time. Um, there were things here that did work for me. Um, I hadn't considered it really before now. Um, but my self hypothesis is that there are certain flavors of that, sort of odd couple type of movie that Jason alluded to and just stories taking place during the yep. holidays um, that I gravitate toward um, uh, especially well. Um, I think there's something about the sincerity in which this movie shows Lee Leander and John Sargent learning about each other and falling in love with each other that kind of tends to engulf me. Um, and the fact that Barbara Stanwyck is here only sweetens that further. Um, there are a lot of reasons to like her in this movie. Um, the writing isn't super strong, but she gets her quips. She has fun interplay with Fred McMurray. Um, she yet again has rather does uh, real work and the, the close-ups that she gets, she kind of illustrates her whole arc using just like the muscles in her face, which was really impressive. Um, she calls out how hot she is in a scene and folks, she's absolutely right and warranted. Um, so Barbara Stanwyck, everyone. Um, but that arc of hers, it part of it involves her learning how to accept love and be loved and find out what it means to be around people who love each other and 
the fact that the movie takes place in 1940 to me means that the idea that idea rather is funneled through some pretty rigid structures um structures that are aggressively heteronormative structures that are aggressively not just white but perhaps also aggressively like anti-non-white um structures that in general aim at a certain socioeconomic ideal that is hard to fully re- relate to maybe even back then but especially now um and some of that comes through in very jarring ways um but also sometimes in ways that are like weirdly uh at odds uh with each other um maybe we'll get into some of that stuff later uh but those detractors aside i spent a lot of time while watching being reminded of other probably more fun travel heavy movies that i love and that i think tell this sort of story much better roman holiday and it happened one night are a few of those movies um but there's enough here that i felt content and even happy with the time i spent um and no small uh, small part because of my limited experience with films starring stanwick and or mcmurray i didn't think they'd be capable of portraying these leads uh, these types of romantic dramedy leads rather in ways that uh, they did. And that's intended to be a compliment, but I'm looking forward to hearing else thoughts too. You hit a lot of really good points there, Cody. Um, I should say, first of all, I don't think that this movie has my politics, uh, which is not surprising as it is a movie from 1940. I don't think it possesses my moral compass either. Both of those things were frankly um, and honestly detractors for me. Um, I don't think I'm immature enough that I can't like a movie that, that, doesn't agree with me in those ways, but uh, it was something I noticed, Um, particularly because I find this movie too moralistic. Um, I think that this movie's moralisms actually make it much less entertaining and much less fun to watch. Um, I also think it's simply too sweet, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think that you've characterized really well the odd couple stuff that I like. Um, I like a more acerbic, uh, sort of like um, barbed relationship between the two leads, which this movie sets up tremendously well in the first scene. And then the two characters undergo a rapid and unexplained personality shift uh, in order to make the movie much sweeter and in order to be much, much um, nicer to John Sargent than I think he deserves and much more critical of Lee Leander than I think she deserves um, in service of this movie's overly moralistic and very 1940s politics, which maybe it was doing because it was a Christmas movie and it had to be traditional in that sense. Um, But those things coupled with the fact that this is a weirdly hateful movie, um, it spends a weird amount of time making fun of different marginalized groups, including black people, poor people, um, maybe arguably developmentally uh, handicapped people. Um, Those, those were sort of tensions that, that lied, um, that sort of belied in in inner sort of uh, judgment that this movie had that really sat with me the wrong way. Again, that's a very 1940s thing, so I'm not I'm not trying to be overly harsh, and I'm I'm keeping the time frame in mind. But those things stuck out to me. Um, and uh, yeah, finally, like I just don't I don't think that this movie quite. I think it was trying to do a lot of different things at once and it kind of was reaching for different things at different times and it never really fully possessed any of the things it was going for because of that, um, because of those mixed allegiances. But uh, finally, I should say that uh, I agree that um, with Cody that Barbara Stanwyck is absolutely phenomenal in this movie. Um, If there's a reason to watch it, it's for her. Um, Fred McMurray is also really good in this. Uh, Ironically, his character is less well-defined, but I found him much more comfortable in this role than I found him in Double Indemnity, which is interesting and and kind of ironic. But I think he's way better at playing like a Superman-type character than he was at playing um, a sort of like conflicted, morally uh, 
gray character like he was or wasn't in Double Indemnity. Um, but yeah, those are my thoughts, I guess. Thank you. Uh, my my thoughts are a little scattered here. I'm going to try and create one sort of uh, hole here. I, I guess I'll, I'll I'll start off by saying that I I do agree with what. Um, I think everybody has said at this point that the Barbara Stanwyck is, I think, the star of this show. Um, I, I do enjoy her more here than I did in Double Indemnity, which is kind of a, a big statement. Um, but I think that this kind of slightly lighter, more comedic, the uh, slightly lighter, more comedic focus of this movie really benefits her quite a bit. Um, I like her in Double Indemnity, but uh, everybody in Double Indemnity is unfortunately acting with uh, the man Edward G. Robinson, uh, and so looks worse in comparison. Um, <laughs> you know, Fred McMurray in this film is doing a great job as well, but I think he loses this one. I think Double Indemnity, it's, it's slightly more on, on even footing there. Um, you know, I, I didn't. I think that I am, you know, as, as we watch some of the other, you know, we watched a bunch of British comedies from uh, decades and decades ago earlier this year and, and recorded episodes on them. I think I was probably slightly more of a fan of some of those than some of the other people on this podcast. I think in general, I just like, I find it really hard to like, I don't really like to shit on movies. Often I'll shit on a movie, but then I'll, I'll, I'll like it anyway, or I'll watch a movie that I don't like. And, but I like it for, uh, despite the fact that I know that it's not very good. I'm, I'm really struggling to grasp onto anything that I really loved here. I think the most telling thing is that this is a holiday movie. This is a Christmas movie that feels just devoid of any sort of actual holiday spirit, like a, a big, dark side of me that I don't like to admit admit is that holiday movies, if done well, can get to me a little bit, uh, despite the fact that I am not a holiday person. Um, I really like White Christmas uh, quite a bit. I watch it every year with uh, my fiance. Um, you know, I, I, I love It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I think that when holiday movies are done really badly, it's entertaining in kind of a fun way. When they're done really well, there's this kind of saccharine quality that I, I really appreciate. Uh, this movie kind of has none of that. Uh, this movie does not even feel like a holiday movie to me. And I think the fact that we are recording this in mid-December, and that's kind of my takeaway, is is pretty damning. Um, and I also, I like comedies and such, and I there were some funny moments in this, but nothing really sticks out as especially memorable. Um, so yeah, I'll say watch it for Barbara Stanwyck if you're a stan of the Stanwyck. Uh, but other than that, I, I really found not much to, to latch on to here, unfortunately. Can we, can we talk about that first, Jason? I'm sorry if I interrupted you, but like that was something no, that please. really stuck out, stuck out to me is the fact that like, I really, and maybe this is a, a problem of me is that early on in a movie, I tend to sort of like maybe latch on to what I think genre trappings or what have you are going to be. And I get sort of a framework for analyzing a movie. And I really thought this was going to be like a screwball, like romantic odd couple pairing in the vein of something like the thin man, because that is how the characters are established. Like Barbara Stanwyck is established as this very streetwise, very tough uh, cool woman who doesn't seem to have a whole lot of remorse about the things that she does and is a career criminal. Meanwhile, um, John Sargent is set up as this sort of like very amoral law uh, prosecutor, which again, like maybe this is my politics showing, but like a prosecutor is not like a boy scout, right? He's a tool of the state that persecutes. 
Um, and that is how, to this movie's credit, he is established, right? He says later on that he is a specialist in throwing women into prison because it's very hard to pin crimes on women because they have the sympathy of the jury. Nonetheless, that's what he's called in for. That's his speciality. And, um, or specialty. I don't know why I said it like that. Kind of pretentious. You're um, still in goofy movie mode. I must be. Um, but so we we get this we we get this sort of cynic, this sort of like wisecracking uh, career prosecutor, and we get this this wisecracking uh, canny criminal. And then the moment they're together, their personalities radically shift, and she becomes this sort of like like very sweet, doe-eyed, unassuming woman who has just never been loved before and is now head over heels for this man. And he becomes this like small town fucking boy scout who is the picture of a perfect family. And it was like watching two different characters and I couldn't square those two things. And I was like, where did this movie come from? Because it's like, you're telling me something radically different than you were telling me in the first half hour of this movie. And it was so weird to see that happen in real time. I'm right there with you. I'm glad you started there because it's where I was going to start. Um, I don't know that the plot matters so much to this movie. Uh, just the overall, like where the characters are and where they end up. Um, I think is really the heart of why I was not the biggest fan of this. I think the conflict, the conflicting part for me is like Harry was saying, like there's the goal, the seed of something that it never quite achieves. Uh, there's like, it, instead it almost like sabotages itself with those really quick character turns. Like you said, between Stanwyck and McMurray being like pretty, apparently pretty clean cut characters in the beginning are not clean cut as in like morally uh, solidified, but like pretty known archetypes of characters that, that should add up to like really entertaining, if not, you know, directly funny, at least, at least like fun uh, sparks should fly, you know? And I don't think that ever quite happens. They run from it so that they can establish different and worse archetypes, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that, that sort of rubs me the wrong way with respect to, um, you know, I, I expect, or I, I hate to say like I expected something of a movie because then I'm getting into like you were saying, Harry, like right, I, 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 I get a beat on, in the first 15 minutes. I feel like I'm going to get a beat on it and I know what my review is going to be. But like it even by those standards, even if I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt and saying like, oh, maybe they're trying to play these characters off of each other in ways to like reveal their who they truly are, that these like performances that they're putting on as, you know, the wisecracking smart ass prosecutor and the very slick, but just not quite fast enough uh, jewel thief that they're, you know, that those are just facades and what we're, what we come to realize and, and learn are their real like personalities, but it it happens like way too fast flat at, at, you know, by the time that they get to Indiana and they arrive at, um, at uh, Jack's home, it's like, then the characters are just totally too flat. It's like, it's like, are you two going to fall in love? Are you, when are you two going to kiss? And it just like, there's never a conflicting feeling about it until near the very end. I, I guess there are a couple hands up. I should hand the mic over. Uh, that is actually a really good point that uh, Harry's point of, of kind of the, the changing characterization here are just inconsistent. That's something that I, I didn't actually pick up on. And now I'm kind of kicking myself a little well, bit. It's weird I, though. Right. Because like, you don't pick up on it because it like, it's so, it's, it's so rapid that you don't see the shift happen because it's just like, it's like they wrote these scenes out of order or something. Yeah. I, I, I do think that while watching it, um, we, we were all watching it. Uh, well, Cody wasn't there yet in this watch, but we were all watching it. And I think that I, I speak for everybody when I say that the opening scenes of this movie are actually, I think, pretty entertaining. Like, I do think that the the trial 
that starts off the film, uh, specifically with with the the other lawyer. There's a very extended scene, maybe too extended, but I think it's kind of arguably, but it's very funny. Yes, and I, I can't find who that actor is. I'm looking at the Wikipedia. I just don't. It's just not clear from what these roles are. But there's the essentially the uh, the lawyer for the defendant uh, for Lee uh, for Barbara's character um, going on this very extended tirade, trying to develop some reason for why this woman, who is clearly guilty of, of stealing this jewelry, did so that will get her off. And it, it's this very comedic, like long running scene. And I think I was kind of taken in with it in kind of this this very entertaining way. I think the dialogue is is very interesting. Um, the, it keeps cutting back to Fred McMurray, uh, kind of talking to his, uh, his, his work associate and kind of making wisecracks in between. And I think that that really works and it does set up these two different characters, but then it immediately, as soon as we get to the point where they're together and they're going on this road trip, uh, to Indiana, I think all of that drops away in such like a startling manner, um, and it even impacts uh, other moments in the film where there's there's a very like legitimately well done and I think kind of beautiful beautiful scene uh, next to I believe Niagara Falls um, and there it's like this romantic like big swelling kind of climax of the movie and then the very next scene is both of the characters going back on the things that they said and did in the prior scene which I think can work but here it just feels like it's deflating everything that came before it and that that happens over and over again in this movie. Um, jumping, uh, rather piggybacking on, um, the points that you fellas brought up. I, I agree. There was this certain, certain disjointedness between, I guess, first act to second. What I was sort of waiting for was uh, the movie gestured at a few different things that I liked in concept. And I'm, I'm bummed that it didn't lean more into them. The idea of like going home, going home for the holidays and like, fleshing out this idea of like these are our roots this is where we come from and like therefore like these are the people we are now and then sort of like inverting that and be like these are the people that we become when we go back home Um, i think the the joke the joke that we made at the time was that this is uh i'm thinking of ending things (laughs) yes yeah a uh, very good joke and yeah something that i can that i appreciated then and even more so now just like thinking about like while we play backseat director um but i i think that would have maybe made some like it, it at the very least it would have actually created a bridge between like the people these uh, or the people these characters were in the first half hour or so and then who they are for the second act and beyond um but otherwise, yeah, that, that shift doesn't really feel warranted unless they wanted to do something with it. And it never really felt like that intent was quite there. Um, I think not to be um, sort of an ideologue here, but I almost kind of think that the politics get in the way of what this movie's trying to do. Because in, in the classic um, screwball couple movie, the the two characters start at odds and then they meet each other halfway and become more like one another. Um, this is like a 70-30 version of that. I was going to say earlier uh, that John Sargent doesn't have a character arc. That's not true. By the end of the movie, he tries to throw the case on purpose, spoilers, to get uh, Lee Leander off. Uh, Lee Leander refuses that and instead chooses to go to prison to take responsibility for for her crimes. That is what she's learned from her relationship with Sargent. She learned that that uh, she's worthy of being loved. She's learned that she can act in this way and that there's a purpose to doing all of that, et cetera, et cetera. You get it. Um, this has the effect of 
to to my mind of not giving John Sargent enough of an arc and being far too uh, uncritical of him, which is frustrating in particular because of the way that his character is set up to be someone who's critiqued. And then that character is altered radically again uh, in order to make him somebody so spotless and perfect. Um, Aaron, you brought up the first scene. That's a really good scene. It, it also speaks really well to his character and his character's sort of amorality is that he ends up being the the instrument that starts off the, the events of this plot because he uses what he calls a dirty courtroom trick to get the um, trial delayed until after Christmas when he thinks the jury will be more sympathetic to his side. He um, manipulates the um, the defendant's uh, argument about hypnosis into this idea that they have to bring on an expert witness and the expert witness will only be available after Christmas. So he basically screws her out of her Christmas. and is excited about that. And then he has this crisis of conscience. That's when his character sort of shifts and he decides to take her out on bail, um, which she thinks at first is going to happen is happening because he wants to sleep with her. Uh, and he is doing some sort of transaction where he'll get her off. If, um, if, if she gets him off, uh, excuse me, I'm very oh, sorry. Lord. Oh my uh, God. I'm it's sorry. Christmas. It was there. Uh, but anyway, um, but then he becomes this, again, like this small town perfect character. And even more damningly, in my opinion, she becomes a character who functions ultimately as a POV for us to see him as the perfect man that he is. Like she continually points out, oh, you're so sweet. Oh, you're so perfect. Oh, look at look at how hard you work to get where you are and look at how your family loves you and my family didn't love me and look at what a perfect life you have and look at how I'm seeing you open the presence with your family right now and look at how I'm having these these conversations with your mom about how hard you worked and how perfect you were and I was like fucking gag me like I was expecting this movie to be about her sniping him him sniping her those two realizing that they're just insufferable enough to be in love with one another a la like fucking much ado about nothing or something that's what I love instead we get this fucking morality play about how john Sargent, the small town boy from indiana like pulled himself up by his bootstraps and lee leander is seeing the hardworking man understands now that that's the the right way to be and that you can be loved if you just if you just respect yourself enough god damn it and it was like man fuck off you know like i'm sorry to to not mince words but it was just like that's just not not the morality play that i want to see that's not what christmas fucking means to me all right I, I, I unabashedly agree with everything you're saying there. I don't know if that I get that, that impassioned about it myself. Yeah, I get pretty uh, excited. I, <laughs> I appreciate that you are. Uh, and I think, I, I know Aaron's got a, a good, uh, what I'm assuming is a, a, an absolute killer thought chambered for this one. But I just want to point out that like, we don't even see that change in Jack firsthand. Like we don't see him coming to like, or admitting that like that's his past or bringing it up. Like we see that through his mom told through, uh, or excuse me, played by Beulah Bondi. And she is the one who tells Lee he worked hard for this. You know, you should leave him because it's jeopardizing his career convinces Lee that that's the way it's, you know, that's the way that the things should be. And that just like, that's another layer of separation between what Jack was positioned as in the beginning of the movie and what he was, what he sort of ended up as maybe half to three quarters of the way through the film. Uh, and it's just like compressing that space. I don't know how he felt about that. I don't know where his character was really going. I'm just seeing what the movie is showing me. And I don't, I don't see those two things jiving at all. Harry, why don't, why don't you respond to that? And then I'll, uh, 
Uh, okay. Um, well, I, I, what was I even going to say here? Um, oh, I guess I was just going to say, like, I just, it, it really, the thing that really bothers me about this movie is just this idea. And again, it's maybe a very 1940 idea, but like Lee Leander is portrayed as this woman with like this, this un, un, uh, removable stain on her honor and on her personality. The fact that she's a, a criminal and like, it's always spoken that way in this like hushed tone. It's like, she has a history. She's, she's, they never say it, but like the, the overwhelming implication is she's damaged goods. Right. And like that also lines up with the, this movie's treatment of like other marginalized groups. Right. We're like, like the black manservant of uh, John Sargent, which first of all, yikes, man, there's some, rough racism in this movie again 1940 but still um he's treated as like categorically less human than uh john john mocks his dialect at one point he calls him not very bright but he can cook the same thing happens when they get home and there's a a character who's portrayed as having like maybe a 1940s understanding of autism or another developmental disability that uh again, sort of precludes him from full status as a family member. And he is likewise sort of abused and seen as lazy. And then meanwhile, we have this woman who has a criminal history and the idea that she could be with John Sargent and not be anything other than a burden in his life is impossible to reconcile for these people to the point where one of the climactic scenes is John Sargent's mom, who is portrayed as a good person up to this point, taking her aside and saying, hey, I can't let you be with my son because you're damaged goods. And the movie is more sympathetic toward that woman and that line of argument than I think any movie ever should be. And it's interesting, right? Because there are deconstructive readings. You can argue against this, right? Like we do see Lee Leander's backstory. We see that she was never loved by her mother, that she was always persecuted by her mother. That is a good argument for why she became a criminal, right? But the end point of that argument, as sympathetic as the movie pretends to be, about Lee Leander is that Lee Leander has to take responsibility for her crimes, right? She thinks that the right thing to do is to go to prison so that she's good enough to be with John Sargent. And John Sargent is a fucking tool of the state. He's the broom of the system that puts people away. He's worse than she ever was. He's operating at a degree of criminality that is not even touchable by people who are outside of the state. But now I'm, uh, I'm on one. So go ahead. Um, yeah, just to really quickly go back to uh, the character of Rufus, who is John's servant. He is the only black uh, character in the film. He is routinely uh, mocked and, and made fun of. Um, it it comes off as uh, very gross. Uh, just to really quickly highlight the actor who played that role. Uh, the actor in that role was Fred uh, Toons. Uh, who went by the nickname of Snowflake. Um, he's actually extremely prolific uh, uh, during that time. He had a career uh, of over 20 years and acted in over 200 films, um, as was the case for a lot of black actors at the time. He goes uncredited uh, in a lot of them. Probably the most famous film that he was in was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He is uncredited in that movie, uh, unfortunately. Um you know, it's kind of a case of uh, a lot of actors who played kind of smaller parts often went uncredited. And when you compound that with the fact that he was black, uh, it's like, uh, you know, even worse. Um, so, you know, shout out to him. He uh, uh, the, his role in this movie is uh, really fucked up, but 
he was incredibly prolific. Uh, it's weird to say he was good in it, right? But he was. I mean, like he's good in this movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree, and I, I think that the the treatment of Rufus kind of compounds. I think a, a lot of the problems with the character of John, um, like a, as Harry pointed out, this movie wants us to kind of accept two things at once. Uh, and the first one is that John Sargent is this kind of goody two shoes who is just like so uncomfortable with the thought of breaking the law in any way. Um, and he eventually kind of comes to eventually, uh, uh, you know, work on that a little bit. Right. But the thought of like Lee, uh, setting fire to a trash can in order to escape, uh, you know, being put in jail for like sleeping in a farmer's, uh, uh, property overnight. Right. Um, that that kind of a thing like frightens him so much in the car. The film also wants us to accept that he is this like ruthless, practical, like does every single thing he can to put every single person in jail, uh, that he is like the person they call in to put women in jail when they've done something wrong. And those two things are like not incompatible, right? Like if the film wants us to accept both of those things, I would normally say, okay, well, those two seem incompatible, but they're not technically. It's just that the character that is the synthesis of both of those points is so unlikable that the end point of this movie doesn't work for me, right? Like that character fucking sucks. If, If that's who that character is, I just don't like that character. I just don't want to watch uh, uh, a story that's going to moralize at me uh, that is sympathetic to that character. I just don't. I just don't like that. And her her meeting him halfway is just faked, right? Like it, the movie sets up the the sort of like uh, whiff that it's going to do that that he's going to that he's going to come to understand that justice is not necessarily the law and the law is not necessarily just, etc. Except that this movie is actually so in love with and sympathetic to the Point Dexter cop. Uh, character that he that John Sargent is that it doesn't actually do that it just sets up us to believe that that's what it's doing and sort of trust that that's going to be good enough yeah uh, the conversation eventually got away from this which is totally okay I felt weird removing yeah, myself and inserting myself oh, my, my bad Cody uh, no that's okay we were just on the note of um, recognizing performers uh, in this movie um, and we talked about Mrs. Sargent a little bit um, uh, John's uh, mother is played by Beulah Bondi. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She's like low key one of the most famous cinematic matriarchs. Um, other than like this movie, uh, she is uh, James Stewart's mother in both It's a Wonderful Life and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, she's also in a kind of less well known movie, popular on Letterboxd, um, and it's her third most popular movie, Make Way for Tomorrow uh, from 1937, which is another sort of uh, familial drama uh, that oh, she's wow. played in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, shout outs uh, to, um, to Beulah Bondi. Um, a real, yeah. good, real good, real good at playing a mother. She, she played a mother in like most of the films later in her career. Uh, and I, you know, she, I think she, she does well in this movie and she actually, I was, I was surprised cause the, the poster for this film on Wikipedia has her listed third under the, the title of the film. And I was like, wait, who the, who the fuck is Beulah Bondi? And then I looked it up and now I'm a more educated man, but yeah, shout out to her. I think she is a good mother figure, even if I don't really like how she's utilized. And I really hate to cut the conversation short, but I've, I've run through all of my thoughts. Did anybody have anything lingering that's really picking at them? Uh, there's a, there's a really interesting um, to, to go deeper into this movie's weird sort of fucked up politics. There's a, there's a really interesting um, 
politic of personal attractiveness that squares really uncomfortably with the way that this movie treats other marginalized groups. Um, like part and parcel to uh, Beulah, I'm sorry, what was her last name? Um, uh, Bond, Bondi. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mrs. Sargent uh, credited in this movie, who is great, by the way. Um, uh, she repeatedly alludes to the fact that she can't believe that Lee Leander would be uh, a criminal because of how beautiful she is. Which is which is wild. Uh, like that's that's very like it, it's also implied to be a big part of why she likes uh, Lee Leander so much is like she dresses her up in her old clothing, her old like like wedding dress and stuff. And uh, or I guess that was Aunt Emma, who is the unmarried sort of spin, spinstress of the um, Sergeant family. Um, but they're both very attracted to her because of how beautiful she is, and it makes the fact that she subverts their expectations um, even like, like more painful for them and to us as an audience, because the implication is that like, like, Oh, like people who look like that are undamaged goods. Right. So like, it's like further setting up an uncomfortable class politic. That is actually quite interesting, except that the movie's conclusions about that class politic don't get to where they should. Instead, they arrive at this conclusion that actually like, it is possible for a damaged person to pull themselves up if you love them. Not that, in fact, those damaged people, quote unquote, are not actually damaged and are still worthy of love, like and shouldn't be damned for their uh, their pasts or their um, what they've had to do. Um, we should also point out, I guess, just that, like, and maybe this is just another categorical thing because, like. Like even now, um, prosecuting attorneys maybe don't um, don't uh, don't get as as much criticism as maybe they deserve. But uh, it's like it's like a thing to to make somebody a prosecutor, right? Because those are the people who are like in charge of putting people in jail. And I can't stress enough how much that wasn't hit in this movie to the point where um, Aaron, you pointed out that line about how he says he was the specialist at putting women in jail. That rings totally false to us at that point in the movie because it's just not brought up at all, right? Like it's it's brought up in the very first scene and then it falls away completely to the point where he says it basically to remind us that that is his characterization. And yeah, go ahead. He, he's like the John Wick of p- putting like thirty-seven-year-old woman in jail for for pe- for petty uh, for petty crimes. He he is he is the Baba Yaga they call in when there's some woman named like Sharon that that like uh, took some some candy from a store. A yeah, fun, just a funny character. Um, and uh, it, you also brought up Aaron that um, after the the best scene in the movie, in my opinion, at Niagara Falls, um, where they have this really sweet like we could run away together, we could do this, we could do that. It's like classic romance. It works really well because Barbara and Stanwyck and uh, uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray are phenomenal actors. It turns out that's not really surprising. Um, then they cut directly to that cab scene, and honestly, it felt like they wrote the first scene of this movie and the last scene of this movie, and then they wrote a different movie into the middle of it. Right. Where it's like like the character arcs make sense in the first scene and they kind of make sense in the last scene. And everything else in the middle is a different story about two different people. (laughs) Except that Barbara Stanwyck's character is consistent and makes sense, largely thanks to Barbara Stanwyck. Can I can I ask really quickly, just one one of the points I brought up earlier and I Cody kind of alluded to it, but um, 
did did this movie work? Maybe it was just me, but I do want to know: Did this movie work as a holiday film for anybody else here? Because Cody yeah. brought up the idea of like coming home to a family on the holidays, which is mm-hmm. such like a classic trope. Did that ring true for anybody? I'll start by saying no. I don't think so. Uh, it it feels a bit disingenuous for the most part. I mean, I get where it's going with, you know, when, uh, when Lee meets with her mom again and her mom does not want her, she's got to like, you know, find family sort of thing. Uh, and going back home and just getting into the holiday spirit and everything. I, for some reason it did not connect with me enough. And I don't know if it's because there wasn't like a snowball fight or there wasn't a, you know, long walk in the snow or something, maybe just some cultural signifier of something that I associate with holiday times before we have, a New Year's Eve countdown. Um, I don't know if there was enough lingering there for me to think, oh yeah, this is a strong contender for like a yearly holiday film. It didn't, didn't click for me in that way. Uh, for sure. I think that's fair. And I'm more or less in the same boat. Um, I'm trying to mentally tiptoe around things that may potentially come up in the noties, but the, the definition of holiday film or like Christmas movie um, has become so it casts such a broad net now, you know, where like, remember the night takes place around the holidays, but would I, I don't think I would consider it a, like a Christmas movie or a holiday movie in that sense. Um, Like Harry said, uh, this movie is very, it gets to be very, very overly sweet, um, but it didn't really feel like it was sweetness with a sort of purpose. Um, If the movie had maybe leaned into like what it actually means to be home and be with these people you love. Like I could tell that there were like semblances of beats and connecting threads. And as much as I wanted to connect those together, I couldn't bring myself to, and I still can't right now. Um, Like there are drafts of a maybe better movie here. Um, But I think for, for the purposes of your question, Aaron, I don't really, I don't really see that here. Um, I like Aaron, you brought this up while we were watching. I like odd Lang Syne a lot. Um, You said it was one of the better holiday songs. Um, You took, you took some guff for it at the time, but I must apologize formally now because I think I agree. Um, it might just be because I'm a really big fan of when Harry met Sally and that yeah, last man. scene. It's, is, it's great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and they have that great conversation about it. Anyway, I really like the new year scene here. I think that is like the heart of the romance in this movie. Um, and the romance kind of works, but like in my mind, unfortunately, if this movie kind of works as a holiday movie, it's also the worst part because not just because I'm a demonic anarchist and, and hate, uh, the holidays and all that they represent, but, um, just kidding. But, uh, it's also kind of just the the heart of this movie's kind of rotten take on morality, which says that, or ends up saying that, like, I don't know. There's something about the fact that this movie is as critical of Lee as they are and as loving toward Sergeant as they are. That makes what I think they're trying to say about the importance of a loving family and the healing redemptive qualities of a family and instead makes it didactic and preachy to me in a way that squares with the holidays in a really uncomfortable way. It's like, instead of saying that like loving somebody can redeem them or can sort of like, like set them on a a righteous path or help them become the person that they want to be or have always been. It instead like seems to be preaching in reverse and saying like, well, look what happened. Look, John Sargent had a loving family and you can see that. And you know how he turned out, he turned out great. And now look like juxtapose that with Lee Leander's mom who hates her and look how Lee Leander turned out. And now we can't have that. You have to love your family and have a traditional loving family 
to get uh, people like like John Sargent, or you'll end up with with a person like Lee Leander who could only ever achieve this by being exposed to another family, right? And it's just sort of like, man, like that sucks ass. And like they raised a fucking prosecutor, and they they demean their um their possibly developmentally um handicapped servant or son. It's never clear. It's not, yeah. I have no so, fucking idea. <laughs> they, tr- they treat him like he's a hired hand, uh, which, but they also, John Sargent buys him a present. So it's, uh, it's not clear, which, you know, kind of may- maybe makes my point a little bit. Um, I, I think it's also not to, I don't know. The fact that this movie is a, a holiday film and and through the meaning of the holidays, even if it's kind of subtle, uh, Lee comes to be a changed woman who uh, uh, kind of learns this this lesson. Uh, and, and at the end of the film, I think we clearly see that she is a different person than she is at the beginning of the film. Um, but the, the kind of the, the end of this movie is basically her saying, I am a different person. Uh, nevertheless, I must still go to jail because that is the price yeah. that I must pay for this. Where it's like, I I understand that this may have not been like the understanding in 1940 and this is maybe a little head-ass, but like if, if, if I take the purpose of jail as anything other than just, like if, if it's rehabilitation, right? We see at the end of the movie, she is oh. a, a better person. She has changed. There is no need for it. Feels needlessly cruel that she is still accepting that she must go to jail at the end of this movie, and like it just feels like that that's supposed to come off as something that we like understand that it's a hard yet necessary decision, but it's not a necessary decision and for her to make. Right, and even like I know it's framed as like is like her personal responsibility, so it's like symbolic for her, and it's like an agency decision for her, which I think the movie wants to make that okay right because it's saying like okay irrespective of if you think she's redeemed the very fact that she's redeemed means that she has to do this and yes i think it's it's just operating on an idea that doesn't make sense like especially again like maybe it's just irreconcilable because we being 2020 watchers know what prison actually is right like i think i i watched the 25th hour spike lee's movie about going to prison like a month ago so maybe that's sitting with me but it's just like man like that that's no good it's a this is a really tragic terrible ending for this character in a way that the movie doesn't seem to think it is yeah. uh capping that off again with uh, an only slightly related um tangent about noting uh filmographies um and stuff sterling holloway plays the character of willie who we've brought up a couple times he's um maybe most well known for being the og voice of winnie the pooh um but he has is done voice work in other uh, Disney features, um, Aristocats, Bambi, Jungle Book, Dumbo. He was the voice of the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. Um, he sings pretty well. Um, so I guess shout out to Sterling Holloway, um, aka Chili Willy. A lot of singing in this movie. Yeah. Um, I, I should also point out one, one last thing, which is just like, I, I just thought of this, but like, there's a whole through line about like, like duty and obligation that's set up by that final choice on, Leander's part, but like we never get any sense of duty from uh, John Sargent. Everything he's doing is 
viewed as magnanimous, magnanimous and never something that is like a moral choice. Like even that first thing where he bails her out is seen as like this, this giant act of charity on his part, instead of something that, that although he himself says he feels guilty about the movie doesn't frame it that way. And Lee doesn't frame it that way. Like we understand that, that he feels guilty about it, but the fact that he feels guilty about it is only a further evidence of his saintliness. Right. And even at the end of this movie, like he tries to get her off, but like when she goes her way with it and says like, no, I have to, I have to go to prison. He's like, damn, well, all right. And it's like, Hey, like, what about what this fucking guy owes her or how this guy has to fucking redeem himself? This guy who's made a career out of putting women in prison. Like how come he doesn't have to like make good on any of this? I think he should be, I think that this movie should end with John Sargent and his family busting her out of prison. That's how it should end. He should break (laughs) in and kill a prison guard for the, for the record and bail her and all of the other women that he has imprisoned over the years. And then they go off to live on a 1940s commune, an abolition commune. Thank you. Good night. I I do like, how the movie ends i guess i i'm i've always kind of liked ambiguous endings and this one ends without knowing the actual outcome of the trial uh i mean you could make prognostications about how it actually ends but i and i don't know that it like vibes super particularly well with what the movie is set up for it but i do i do like that we don't get the exact clarity there um it does it asks a lot more of lee than it asks of jack uh, the whole, like, I guess, resolution of their arcs. Um, and like you say, he should be probably held to task a little bit more. There's an interesting part of a scene that we haven't touched way too much on, but the scene at Niagara Falls, um, where they both sort of come clean about the plan and, you know, what they want. She says that she heard from Jack's mom about how he grew up and how hard he worked to get where he is. And that's why she doesn't want to, you know, hold on to him where she sort of, I forget the line she uses, but she sort of intimates that she does not want leniency from him, that she wants to like face judgment as, as posed. Um, and like, there's no solid counter argument for that from Jack, which feels like a, slight failing of of his position and what he what he wants uh i I don't know that that stuck in my mind uh how there is there's no reason for him not to just push it as hard as he can and take it all into his uh all all under his complete control except what she says where she says that she doesn't want him to be the savior sort of thing and especially if he actually was the fucking saint that everybody seems to think he is Exactly. It's inconsistent with the character. It ends up uneven and a little strange. Right. Not again, just not holiday vibes, you know, not like too much of a bait and switch throughout the movie to be like super entertaining and satisfying. And then not at all, I guess, in in any sort of happy or heartfelt way, meaningful toward the end or, or like, I mean, I know I just said that I like how the movie ends, but that is not consistent with a holiday movie to me. I, it's I don't know. dissonance. It's, yeah. Right. He he should have said, "Lee, we have you haven't failed us. We failed you. And crimes are the taxes we pay for failing you." Crime is good. Actually, it is a thing that arises from uh, systemic rules and regulations that lead to poverty. Uh, and we understand. And I'm giving up my post immediately after exonerating you. That's right. Um, okay. Well, I think I'm ready to segue into our final segment. Uh, if everybody else is ready for that to happen. And what is that final segment, Jason? We like to call that final segment uh, (gasps) by the snappy name of (gasps) Cody's Cody's Noties. Noties. (gasps) Thank you, as always, uh, for that warm 
introduction, gents. Um, this week, I had the impulse to circle back to a game that we've done once before, and that is Try Love Beyond Blunderdome, a uh, copyright Try Love a Movie podcast. Um, the premise of this game is super duper simple. We're going to mosey through some goofs listed throughout the internet movie database. Um, there's probably a handy abbreviation for that somewhere. These goofs uh, might be related to continuity. Uh, maybe there was a boom mic visi- uh, visible in a shot. Maybe it'll be like a fearless hyena two situation, wherein the lead Jackie Chan left the production halfway through, and the production team had hodgepodge the rest of the movie together using obvious shots of other actors. Maybe it'll be something like that. Um, we'll see soon. Uh, but in any case, the general theme uh, of the films these goofs belong to is uh, Christmas adjacency. Um, Remember the Night is, uh, as we sort of gestured at, uh, sort of a Christmas movie. Um, Not really. It, uh, you know, if we're using the generally accepted definition that it takes place during the holidays. Um, So what I'll do is uh, I'll read the goof and y'all will give me the name of the movie the goof belongs to and we can make this obviously a contest. Uh, That's first come first serve. So just uh, raise your your little Zencaster hands once you have a guess. I'll do the thing where I stop reading as soon as I see a hand, and everyone everyone will get one guess uh, per round. Um, if you guess and you're wrong, you're out uh, until the proper movie is identified. Uh, I'm excited to jump in and chat about goofs because who knows how much goofy content we'll be able to put out in the coming weeks. Ooh. Um, with that in mind, are y'all ready to get started? Aye. 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 All right. Um, the first one up here. Uh, the usual disclaimer. Uh, right before we jump in, I feel like I generally have a good handle on your guys' tastes and sensibilities. I don't believe any of these will be wildly difficult, but we'll start with what I hope is a relative softball. Um, and the goof is, as they are getting thrown out of Nick's, George and Clarence swap sides. Aaron, I saw your hand first. It's a wonderful life. It is a wonderful life. I lost my cursor. It wasn't where I thought it was. Oh, I, yeah, no, I, it's I just, the old I, mouse cursor. I knew. As soon as I, as soon as I heard Clarence, I knew that I was not going to be the fastest Clarence. on it. And then I saw Aaron's. Yeah, I didn't oh, think I was. That, of, I thought I was. Yeah, I had, I had to do a double taker. I was like, wait, what is the name of that fucking? Mo- not I know the movie, but I was just like, wait a minute. Do you I have it there? Right? Yeah, swiftly. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's- Clarence life. Uh, all right, perfect. Moving right along here. We've got seven of these bad boys total. Um, so we've got Damn. a lot of a lot of opportunities to make up ground. Also, these will go a little bit faster than some of the other uh, questions we do for these games. Um, so I added a few more. Uh, second goof. After first entering the building, when Carl shoots the second security guard, you can see the outline. Harry. Die Hard. Die Hard. 1988's Die Hard. Okay, is it a Christmas okay. movie? Is it not a Christmas movie? Who gives a fucking flying Thank shit? You. There you go. Official trial um, of stance on Die Hard. Oh, awesome. Copyright trial of a movie podcast. Uh, it's not excellent. impossible that that'll come to the trial on someday. Oh, That's true. Not. I would love to talk about Die Hard, yeah. Me too. Absolutely. Um, moving right along. Uh, the third goof. Baxter's pajamas are inconsistent when he is first kicked out of his apartment. Jason Daphnis. The Apartment? The Apartment, co-starring Fred McMurray, uh, released in the year 1960. Have not seen oh, the film. I forgot that Fred McMurray was also in there. I have oh, not yeah. seen The Apartment. He, he has yeah, a line in the movie where, hold on, I wrote it down. Uh, he has a 
line, uh, oh, I could lend you my apartment while I'm away. And I was like, oh my god, that's the apartment. Like, oh, he's gonna uh-huh. be years later. Hey, I think Harry, and, Harry and Aaron, you just need to be better friends to Cody because I only watched that movie because Cody lent it to me. I, I, I was going be... to say that I knew that and, you know... Wasn't that uh, New Year's 2018 slash 2019 that we was, were going to... Yes, we were going to make that. It was 2019 into 2020, I think. Oh, okay. we, watched, we watched Tron Legacy instead. And then... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I think I think we made the right decision. Wait, yeah. What yeah. was I? I was actually out of town. You were you out of town with yes. your uh, your fiance. My fiance, yes. My finances. Your finances. And I <laughs> hey. Shout out Aaron's finances. Come on the pod. Uh, goof number four. By the way, we're sitting at a three way tie. Uh, you love to see it. Um, one to one to one. Uh, goof number four here. Even though the phone lines are supposed to be down, Kevin orders a fucking pe- Jason. Is this Home Alone? It is Home Alone. I have I never that. actually That's seen. Wild. Never actually seen that movie, but I know the character's name. What the fuck? You have a shout out. Shout out to the scathing review Harry liked on Letterboxd. Yeah, that's a really, really, really tore yeah. Home Alone uh, a new one. Um, yeah, Home Alone is uh, like many John Hughes movies, um, like really weirdly. Uh, Mean spirited and hateful. Yes, yeah. And this, uh, is a, this is a meme where Harry's on the left saying, "No, you can't like John Hughes movies; they're mean spirited." And then on the other one, it's like, "Haha, uh, bean can hits guy in nuts." Right. Uh, <laughs> Wait, <laughs> a bean can hit the guy in the nuts in this movie? Oh my god, I got to. Yeah, watch there's this. Some, there's yeah, some yeah. nut. There's some great nut actions. Uh, getting just just people bowling balls and shit. Yeah, some GNAs. Yeah. Sure. on you because uh, John Hughes also cast Harry Dean Stanton as Molly Ringwald's uh, father in Pretty in Pink. So you could say I have complicated feelings on John. <laughs> <laughs> he jokes on us for sure. Um, Excellent. Well, uh, we'll we'll wrestle that and reconcile those feelings later. Moving along to goof number five, um, <clears throat> the handkerchief in Nick's jacket pocket keeps changing in appearance during Nick and Nora's Christmas Eve party. Uh, I believe I saw Jason's hand first. Uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Wrong, Aaron. Wow. Uh, the Thin Man. The Thin Man. I gave that one to you. I gave that one to you. Let's go, baby. Eat of my body and drink of my blood. Uh, bless the IMDb uh, annals. Um, but in the goofs, they had this. They have this. Um, certain format all of them are set up as when name does blank. So a lot of these I've had to shift around, and so Nick. You got to love some like the end. You got to love some clean content organization, though. I mean, frankly. I mean, also think about how great that Christmas scene is, where Nick is fucking oh, drunk and hungover as fuck, and he's Shoot, shooting yeah. that toy gun. <laughs> now well, that's a rules. Like, go watch that movie, and uh, we did a yes. so uh, maybe check that one out. Absolutely. If any of my friends here want to borrow uh, the six movie Thin Man set that I have, um, you could be better friends to me, and uh, I'll, I'll <laughs> lend you that and the apartment. Um, but uh, again, we'll we'll kind of wrestle that off, Mike. Um, goof number six. We've got two more here. Uh, Aaron and Jason sit at two goofs apiece. Harry is at one. Um, still anybody's game. Uh, go- uh, goof number six. About seven minutes into the film, when the moaner calls. You can very clearly see a boom mic at the top of the Jason. Black Christmas. 
Black Christmas. I not gave you my episode. heart. Not I, I, was, I wasn't on that episode. That one was so waiting on a silver platter for me because that was me and Cody and Matt Yost. On it's that the episode. only episode of this podcast I haven't been on. I see how it is. Ooh, yeah. I, I, that was a test okay, to see I, how many I, of, I our, of our co-hosts have uh, listened to our, uh, our prior episode. episode. Watch these movies. The, the Harry and Aaron Commission are going to convene later in order to discuss whether there's been significant vote rigging towards Jason Daphnis. Uh, you need to, you need to collect process. at least 500. Stop the count. First, first off, uh, off, you need to collect at least 500 petition signatures before you can even exist. Oh, we'll get them, buddy. Okay. Yeah, we'll we've got eighty six Twitter well, followers. We got so we got eighty six <laughs> signatures already. Yeah. Uh, look for a change.org link in the episode description. Uh, we'll get that distributed. Um, so it's we going can... all the way to the Supreme Court, baby. That's right. I, also, remember yeah, how whenever whenever we're asked about our favorite episodes of Try Love, Jason repeatedly says that Black Christmas is his. I don't say that I, it is. I say that it's one of mine. It's fucked up. Yeah. Maybe you could ask one about Corina Scotty, Cody, so Harry and I can get one. You know, uh, okay. The I don't know if did that movie have any good. You, can, you, you can, can briefly see Philip Glass's fro in one scene. Yeah, that, that one nineteen seventies guy is way too hot, and they dwell on him for like he 10 is. Years. He looks good. Anyway, sorry. Continue, Cody. All right, uh, that's okay. We have one more here. Um, uh, we have Jason in the lead with three goofs. Aaron at two. Harry yeah, at dude, one. Um, can I ask real quick? For, yeah, go ahead. Uh, do you get you sorry? You don't get negative points for answering incorrectly. No, no, no. Okay. You just lose your okay. guess for that round. Cool. Uh, so uh, it's all it all comes down to this goof number seven, and uh, our last blunder is as follows: the tombstones in the grave. Aaron is an elf. I'm just shooting to the wind. Here's an elf. Wow. Uh, Showing it away, and the bullet ricochets and goes. Ah! Not hitting anything. Um, I will. Uh, I'll recap that the tombstones in the gir- I think is where I left off. The tombstones in the graveyard wobble when touched by the penguin's coat. Harry, uh, Batman Returns. Batman Returns in the year of okay. our Lord, nineteen ninety-two. Okay. Um, that year gave us uh, Batman Returns and me and maybe Whoa. anybody else and also me. Hell yeah! It, 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 well, it gave Seth Happy. to the world. So and Seth, shout out to Seth. Yeah, friend of the pod. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, those are the goofs. Um, final score: Jason three, Aaron and Harry tied a piece uh, at two. Yeah, but if you if you take mm-hmm. the commission's findings into account, we'll talk, oh. Harry. We'll talk later. Mm-hmm. Right? There's an asterisk next. There to will this be a, there will be a, a runoff episode uh, next month. I still get bonus points for correctly attributing that one quote to Akira Kurosawa about Toshiro Mifune. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple episodes ago, uh, sure you got That's it. Correct. Right ancient history uh thank you cody that is always so much fun i hope we get uh, i I don't know where did we'd have to tabulate who's won like individual games here i know aaron was reigning I've champ saved, i've saved all the score sheets if i thank really you. felt like cleaning my room i'm sure I could that, mu- that might be the only one that i've won like an actual I round so. i think baby you've usually been tied kind of in second though you know what i mean yeah well second of, of three isn't great aaron I've yeah it's not true i'm just being nice well, Harry and I are carrying this, yeah. Well, that has been a hell of a lot of fun with Cody's noties. Uh, this has been our episode about Rem- Remember the Night, 1940 film. Uh, you can find a whole lot of cool stuff and good ways to support the Trilon at trilon.org. Uh, I should probably ask Cody, was that the end of your noties? 
Oh yeah, yep, all done. Those those are the goofs. Those are those are done with. Excellent. Uh, I just bought a mask from the Trilon. I have a hoodie on order. I am a member of the Trilon Club. Just finding all sorts of cool ways to keep things going for them while they're shut down. Um, there's no reason for me to say that if you go to the movies right now, uh, wear a mask because I don't think any theaters are open. But just wear a mask wherever you're going. PSA, general PSA to everybody out there. Um, in the meantime. I am Jason. You can find our podcast at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. And you can find me at Nintendoofus. Uh, objection sustained. The jury will disregard Mr. Daphnis's tempting allusion to Christmas shopping. I just wanted to get one more quote in. Nice. Um, I've been Cody. You Excellent. can find me on Twitter uh, at Cody underscore BH. Hey, Jason, did you get an email from Barry that was like, hey, we've got a bunch of your shit and we're going to try to mail it to you all at once? Yes, and he yeah. made a mistake in it and I confirmed the mistake and then he said, oh no, that's a mistake. And I said, oh, thank you. And then he's like, nope, it was my fault. And then I got a confirmation that it was being sent. You guys are nice. hype. Wow. You guys are totally, you're buying merch, you know, you got Trilon. like, with, I feel like with the, yeah, the Trilon and like Criterion stuff, you guys are definitely like film version of hype beasts something to at least about. i don't have at least i don't have a gaming pc that i didn't pay for <laughs> uh, you should have a gaming pc you didn't pay. everybody in the in under my government everybody in the country will have a gaming pc for free uh Damn, delivered. aaron 2028 that's right exactly i'm wearing my tashiro mefune trilon shirt right now so i guess i can't really argue against light his ass up um, I've been Harry. I'm sorry if Remember the Night is your favorite movie of all time. Uh, just remember that I'm a just a smelly socialist, and I uh, spent New Year's Eve 2018 to, or 2019 to 2020 with my podcast cohort. Uh, so you know, if if you're frustrated with me, know that you could easily get my ass, and you can do that on Twitter. I'm at Shiitake Harry. Uh, I am Aaron. I am just now realizing that I don't think they ever said the phrase "remember the night" in this movie. Did they do that? I didn't hear it. No. What is what? Okay. Anyway, never mind. Find me on Twitter at RB, please. I'm on private, but if you quest me and you look fine, maybe I'll accept you when I'm back on Twitter. See you soon. Hey, what does "look fine" mean, bud? What does that mean? Uh, if your if your account is not like uh, you know like a, a f- well, there's a number of bad profile pictures what that'll make saying, it not. What he's saying is is no uglies, right? Any baseball player, like if you're like clearly like a barstool uh, sports account guy, I, no, uh, no, no chance, buddy. Uh, anything abundantly like uh, bigoted, you know what I mean? Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Sunglasses and a goatee. How would that fall? Uh. Not bad. I mean, really, it's just like if as long as you don't have like a brand, as long as you're not like PlayStation fan fifty nine, I will probably accept uh, your request to follow me on Twitter, uh, which is a great honor. So, I mean, I, I like to think I'm being fairly, you know, uh, nice here. So. All right. Well, the music's running. Uh, let's let's get out of here. <sighs> and all the time, I thought it was my legs. Do it.